Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. And I'm Tara Barrett. And we are today digging through our archives. Uh, Over the past 11 years or so of the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office, we've been recording all kinds of interviews. We've done hundreds of interviews and digitized probably thousands more. Um, So we are going to do some of the work for you and and select some of the, the clips. And today I think we're talking about occupational folklore. Yeah, all those things that make work a little bit more bearable, all the... All the different aspects that uh, bring a little bit of culture to work. Yeah. So uh, all the clips that we're going to play today are are kind of on that theme of work and work-related traditions or work-related memories in the first case. Uh, To start off with, we're just going to go straight into a little recording and then we'll explain what it is and play a a follow-up recording. Yes, there's more of what you go for in Pontiac for 73 at Terranova Motors, rear of Hotel Newfoundland. Convenience, comfort, pleasure, and value for your money. That's Pontiac at Terranova Motors. From the lowest cost Laurentian and on up to Catalina, Parisienne, Grand Prix, Bonneville, and the superb Pontiac Grandville. The same attention to detail, the same care that's always been lavished on Pontiac is apparent in every Pontiac for 73. There's more of what you go for at Terranova Motors. We got more going for you. And Astra, the little Pontiac that's right on is a Terranova Motors rear of Hotel Newfoundland. Astra, built in Canada by Canadians, is Pontiac's first ever small economy car. Astra takes on the imports and proves point by point why it's a winner. Terranova Motors, we got more, more going for you at Terranova. <laughs> Uh, so that's from the 1970s. Yeah, so that clip comes from uh, Linda Kane, who works with, uh, I guess, Cupid's The Legacy Center out there. Her father worked with Terranova Motors in, I guess, between the 50s and 70s. And her father was also an avid radio listener, and he had a bunch of cassettes um, that she had no idea what was on them. She knew some of them had to do with his work at Terranova Motors, but we uh, digitized them in the office. And, I mean, there were some cassettes that were from, you know, Joey Smallwood before he became premier, and there's all these liberal conventions, but uh, there were several things about Terranova Motors, Terranova including Motors, that yeah. jingle. Yeah, and that's the, it gets stuck in your head. And, oh, yeah. And, and, and she remembers being a girl and, and kind of going to Terranova Motors you know, with her father. So that would have been much earlier than this jingle. This is, this is from the 1970s, but she was remembering things from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, so I guess uh, I played her that jingle, and then she said she kind of realized that wasn't the one that she had thought of, and we did a little oral history interview around her father's work. Well, you haven't got the one that I'm thinking of. I'm going to have to see if I can find that. Because it was Terranova Motors, Terranova Motors, Pontiac, Buick, Vauxhall, GMC trucks, if you're looking for a good car, my friends, Terranova Motors, we recommend. Now is the very best time to buy. And here is the reason I'll tell you why. Something, <laughs> something like that. That's great. Uh, I love hearing her sing that. And and we've been to little events since then where we're eliciting memories from people. And every so often we'll kind of throw that in. Do you do you remember the Terra Nova Motors jingle? And some person of Lind of Linda's vintage will start singing uh, it. Bust out the Terra Nova jingle. Yeah, it's funny how those kind of pop culture songs enter into our 
you know, kind of our, our informal repertoire, you know, and, and kids, I think, you know, are really, they're like sponges with that, with that kind of stuff. So it's kind of neat to hear all of those, you know, 60 years later to hear her singing the, uh, the Terra Nova Motors jingle. One of the other things that I really loved about that was that she had all this paraphernalia of materials that like her father had collected. And there was this great advertisement of him. It's like he's around the world. There's a picture of him like hugging basically a huge <laughs> photo of their car lot. And it was like <laughs> one of their sales pitches, which is just awesome and like totally 60s. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you digitized all that material and that's available on Memorial University's uh, Digital Archives Initiative. And, and you can go uh, there, collections.mon.ca and uh, all that material is there. You can you can go in and look for Terra Nova Motors, and I'm sure you'll... Uh, yeah, you should be able to find <laughs> some photos and some audio. It, yeah, <laughs> and, and some of those other recordings that you were talking about. Uh, so this is one of the things that we do when we go out as folklorists and we're interviewing people and, and talking to them about their, their memories. Uh, and work is always a big, big part of that. We've talked on this show a couple times about the project that you were involved in out in Grand Falls, Windsor. Grand Falls, Windsor, a company town, or Grand Falls was the company town, Windsor was the non company uh, side of town and it was a, a pulp and paper mill that was there and so you you were out for salmon fest last yeah, year salmon fest in uh, I guess 2018 in 2018 yeah so and most people think of that as the music concert but there's other events that happen in Grand Falls Windsor well there's the big salmon dinner that's the big one <laughs> <laughs> which I went yes. to the year before which was yeah. delicious yeah but this year on the Friday before, they did a, a memory mug up, which was this, in this case, a, a staged interview with six different people from the community, uh, three from Windsor and three from Grand Falls, who, uh, who decided to tell the different stories. Um, <clears throat> so as part of that, uh, there was this story about uh, the mill baskets, which were significant in Grand Falls, Windsor. Um, and this particular woman uh, tells a great little vignette about her husband's experience with them. Everybody who worked in the mill had a mill basket, and you delivered a hot lunch or a hot supper. So in 1963, when we moved to uh, Nova Scotia, Smitty, my husband, Don, Smitty took his lunch basket with him. And of course, the first time he walked into the mill in Port Hastings, <clears throat> I mean, it was a laughing stock because he had this big basket with a hot meal in it. And everybody else had their little metal basket cans with a thermos, you know, and they thought it was hilarious to have this uh, work basket, picnic basket, they used to call them. Now, here comes Smitty with his picnic basket. So that was Barbara Smith at the Memories Mug Up in Grand Falls, Windsor. And this is something that we've kind of been interested in for a while at Heritage NL. Uh, the mill, uh, the various mills in, in Newfoundland, uh, you know, they, they attracted their own customs and traditions. And mill baskets were really uh, something that people are very nostalgic about. Lots of people still have their father's or grandfather's mill basket. And, and they are kind of like picnic baskets. They look like picnic baskets. They're these... Um, so many of them are these kind of woven, uh, woven wooden baskets with a, a wooden bottom and a wooden top that kind of flips down with handles that flip up. And um, we, we heard so many stories about mill baskets. A, a few years ago, uh, Nicole Penny, who is assistant archivist over at the Munn Folklore and Language Archive, her and I had uh, 
been going around doing some research. And we actually ran a couple of events called Tea and Baskets, where we would uh, we went to mill towns and we invited people to bring their mill baskets and uh, share their stories. And and some people came who were working, you know, workers at the mill. Other people brought their their family baskets. We went to people's houses and photographed we photographed hundreds of baskets, I think. Um, and, and actually met some of the relatives of some of the great uh, basket makers of the past uh, because it was really a kind of a specialized skill mm-hmm. and they evolved over time and and there's lots of pictures again on the digital archive that you can go and you can do a search for for mill baskets um, one of the people that we interviewed uh, t- did a, a great little recitation. I'm always a fan of recitations. So I'm going to let you listen to that. And he was one of these men who uh, still worked in the mill in Cornerbrook. And is, he was one of those people who had had a mill basket and had taken his mill basket in. Uh, over time, people kind of replaced them with more plastic, uh, thermos, uh, Coleman kind of uh, more modern. things. Or more modern. Yeah. Um, but he had his old mill basket, and he he brought it with him under his arm, and uh, and did this recitation for us. You walk on down through a cold, dark town. The guard he greets you at the gate. Says, "How's it going there, my friend? Looks like you're working more twelve to eight. You got winders, grinders, you got paper machines. You got to make them work. There's no other means. It seems college wasn't your piece of cake." So here's the punishment that you gotta take. It goes on, it's called continuous production. You're marked as trained in some foreman's log. Now you're a shift work underdog. Then you work until you're 65. You can retire if you're still alive. It goes on, and it's called continuous production. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. So you can hear some appreciative uh, tea goers there uh, uh, listening to Mr. Terry Penny um, with that little recording there. That was back in 2012, uh, and uh, unfortunately, I think he, he passed away not long after we had done those uh, those interviews. So I, we're, we're kind of lucky to have that to the, have that uh, recitation. Um, one of the other people that we had started to, to do some work with when we were out that way, we, we had heard that this gentleman had a, a mill basket, so we were gonna, we called him up and said, can we come and photograph your basket? <laughs> and he said yes, and we went off, and, and we ended up having a really interesting chat. Um, this was man, uh, Clayton Tipple, and this was back in 2012 as well. Uh, and Mr. Tipple uh, had had a number of different uh, jobs, uh, throughout his life, but uh, one thing that he uh, was very involved with was the Newfoundland Railway, and so we had a really interesting conversation with him about kind of his work life and working on the railway. And one of the things that we started talking about were derailments, uh, because you know this was kind of a, a big deal. If you were working on the railway and a train went off the tracks, you know that that was a big disruption. They could be quite dangerous and, and quite damaging. Um, and this is. Uh, Mr. Clayton Tipple's memory of train derailments. Uh, yeah, we had one, um, about the worst one that I remember was over in Flat Bay. Uh, actually, I had been in St. John's and we were coming across Newfoundland with my boss that was in St. John's and two or three more people. And we had a phone call that there was a train derailment in Flat Bay and 
course, I had to leave down there and come on home over here and go out to Flat Bay. And we had the, uh, it was a freight train heading towards Port of Ass, and it was about, uh, I would say, 25 cars derailed, some of them down over a big embankment. I was over there for a full week. We were there a week before we had it all cleaned up. But at the time, you'd get a big crane come out from Port of Bass, which would lift the cars up and a crew of men. And so that's about the one that stands out in my mind the most. But a lot of them, you'd get sometimes just an engine off the track or a couple of cars off, you know, just probably one or two wheels derailed or something. But so what would cause it? Various things, probably a broken rail. Uh, if they ran over, if they hit a moose and ran over a moose, moose could, was the cause of a lot of derailments. But uh, usually it would be a broken rail or, or what they call the sun kink in the summertime, a sun kink if you had a real hot day and the sun very hot, it would put a little, sort of little bend in one of the rails and that would cause a lot of derailments. You know, it's it's interesting hearing him talk. That was in, in 2012, talking about sun kinks. And I actually, uh, just recently, a- having listened, re-listened to the interview we did with Mr. Clayton Tipple, I had just Googled sun kinks. And apparently, this is, this is one of the... Um, side effects of global warming that we're that they're seeing now in the they're United. More. They're seeing more sun kinks in the United States uh, in the in the southern parts um, because the average temperature is is higher. Uh, the the sun is beating down on these tracks and they are uh, can be very very expensive, like millions of dollars worth of damage if a tra- if a train goes off the tracks. And and global warming will increase the number of sun kinks. You know, which is so you know when we were when we were doing this. Uh, research back in 2012 that wasn't something that we were we were thinking about at all i also really love the part about the moose oh mike i just i find (laughs) it fascinating like i've I've heard railway stories but i didn't realize that the moose were a problem back then like they are today i mean you'd imagine the damage a moose would do if a a locomotive uh, hit it going at high speed uh so we we uh we have come across a number of different uh, railway stories. Um, the railway kind of shut down in Newfoundland in the 1980s, and so there's still lots of people alive who had worked on the railway. Uh, one of the projects that we've been doing uh, over the past couple of years is our Collective Memories project. Um, do you just want to explain what, what the Collective Memories project is? Sure. So I guess our Collective Memories project is a project um, that we do through the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office at the Heritage, uh, Heritage NL, and it's funded in part by the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. And it's really focused on um, capturing stories of seniors in our province. So getting them to share those stories, kind of, um, we've we developed this mug up program as part of that, getting people out sharing stories with each other and then preserving those as well. So we'll do one-on-one recordings so that we capture those. And then we, we are using the digital archive, which we've mentioned uh, before on the show, um, to kind of place those recordings online so they can be publicly accessed and, and preserved for generations to come. One of the first projects that we did with the Collective Memories uh, program was a, a little project out in Clarenville. Um, the, the, the museum there is housed in the old 
railway station, and they were interested in, in having a bit of training on how to do interviews and then conducting some interviews with some of these old railway men and collecting some of their stories. So we just heard that interview with Clayton Tipple about sun kinks and, and moose getting on the tracks. Um, one of the men that we talked to in Clarenville was a man by the name of Baxter Tuck, uh, and he had uh, a really interesting story about a train derailment on the Bonavista branch line. I, I can tell you of one, not in my time now, yeah. in my father's time, even on the Bonavista branch, and the mailman rolled the train. He, he, he had a, a half a car or something for handling the mail. So in Bonavista, while they were switching, he got up boarded the engine for a ride around, and they had to pass over a small brook, but there was a lot of water in it. And when they went, they went off the track and went down, and he, this uh, mailman, is heels of his boots cut in the apron. Now, you don't know what an apron is. Okay. There has to be something between uh, the locomotive and the tender. So this is metal. There's a metal thing that slides around so he always had something to walk on. So his heels got cut. And he was up to his chin in water. So they tried several things and then somebody said, go get loose little. They got this loose, this guy, Louis Little, he came up and looked at it. He said, you, you, you and you come with me. They went off, and they came back with a spur out of a schooner. And he stuck it down and lifted the, the tender enough that the heels released. <laughs> they had the doctor there when he was down there. He was feeding them with the... Whiskey. Brandy. <laughs> to keep them warm. But they, they stuck the spur down and tipped. Everybody got on the weight. And go. they tipped her enough that they got a seal clear. <laughs> so a story there of a rather dramatic rescue with some brandy on the Bonavista branch line. Naturally. <laughs> you always need some brandy if you're going to be <laughs> stuck in that cold water. Um, uh, one of the other memories that people had was about the cook car. Uh, so the men who worked on the line uh, would get fed, uh, and apparently the, they were kind of known for their food. So there would be a, a cook car that would uh, would supply the workers. And we did an interview with Lindo Palmer in Clarenville, who had a very specific memory about the cook car. And breakfast was the big thing. Uh, if I could tell a little story about breakfast um, train and the smell come from the cook car. There's an old gentleman, uh, Uncle Bren Tilly, we call him. He was a trapper most of his life, and uh, he would leave in the spring and be gone for a month, maybe, maybe more, with a knapsack on his back. And uh, what food he could carry, which was very little, fatback pork and uh, molasses buns. And, and so by the time he'd get back home, out here just out uh, 65th we call it he would be out of ground for the last three days and very little of anything indeed and when he hit the track what should be going by would be the train at either supper time or breakfast time and the smell of bacon and eggs and where he was so hungry he tells that story so you can imagine <laughs> what he felt like <laughs> So that was a little story about the meals on the train. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
So that was a great little story there. Uh, the person talking about just how great it smelled there, it reminded me of the story of, uh, is it Bev Butler? Bev Butler, yeah. And uh, when she was a kid, how her parents weren't around for some reason and there was a train got stopped and they ended up, <laughs> what was it? They ended up <laughs> feeding they, everyone? <laughs> her, uh, her, her father was the station manager in Lethbridge, I think, and, and they had gone into Clarenville and got um, got stuck in a storm and there are all these men working on the line and and so the kids uh, back at house had to had to feed everyone and they basically wiped out everything all their booze all their all their candy <laughs> everything they had they fed they fed it and to the men and when the parents came back there was no food left in the kitchen we'll have to dig that clip out and, uh, and play, play that, that another time yeah uh, bev was the person that introduced me really to grand falls windsor she she's uh, no longer with us but she uh, she had been very instrumental in getting the hiram silk uh, collection um uh, digitized finding some money to do that we'll have to do a whole episode just of yeah, hiram silk say. that's a fabulous story that we can get into at another time he was a radio broadcaster and re- made a lot of fabulous recordings um so so maybe we'll just go back we'll backtrack again and go back to grand falls um this is another one i think that was recorded at your uh your mug up session yeah so this is another one from the mug up session and this is brian kind of talking about how i guess newspapers have changed over time and just uh growing up with the advertiser and how that's changed in his lifetime my father said, and I remember, you know, ironically, you know, 50 years ago when I was young, uh, that they could give away the newspaper because the newspaper, were, if it was of any value in the community, and it was a pretty big deal in all the lives of a lot of people in Central Atlanta, it was born out of advertising. That's how it got paid for. So you know, it wasn't much of an affront calling it the advertiser because that's what they that's how they survived people paid money to put ads in it and then of course it was filled with news stories so really uh, uh, you know when it's all said and done the paper itself didn't need to be sold yeah so that's brian there talking about how i guess how newspapers have changed over the years and there's there's much less um I guess demand today for a physical newspaper and it's much more of a, a digital thing today. And I guess the next thing that we really want to talk about is somebody who I guess dealt with paper paper <laughs> yeah, uh, copies the, and actually delivered them. Actually delivered those. Yeah, that, that was a real, I, you know, and I remember I never had a paper route when I was a kid, but I remember lots of kids that I knew in the neighborhood who, who would deliver papers. and. And back in the, you know, kind of the mid-century uh, St. John's, uh, paper boys would, were, were a very common thing to see paper boys out uh, delivering to their clients or selling newspapers on, on the side of the street. And uh, a friend of mine, a, a few years ago, uh, several years ago now, Chris Brooks, who's a local uh, documentary radio producer, uh, he and I had been working on a project called Hearsay, which was a project that uh, showcased stories along Water Street. And, and a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Karen Moore, uh, she said, oh, you should talk to my dad because he was a paperboy on Solomon's Lane. Uh, so I had uh, tracked down her dad and, and had a chat, uh, Joe Moore. Um, and, I, and I had known Joe, Joe before. His, his wife uh, is a great storyteller and has given me several ghost stories uh, various times throughout the years from her home out in Buckins. Um, but these are Joe's memories of Solomon's Lane and working as a newspaper delivery boy. We're at the foot now of Solomon's Lane, and where is the parking lot now that used to be the evening telegram. The evening telegram used to come out three or four o'clock every day. 
except on Sundays. And the delivery boys would come down here, fight their way into a wicket to pick up their papers. I can't recall it, but I must have paid for the papers then because you had no such thing as invoicing and all that. You took your papers and you went your various ways uh, where you're going to deliver them. There must have been easily 40, 50, 60 newspaper boys around the wicket waiting for the papers to come out. So I would come get the papers and basically the route would start from here and everybody's route started from here. So I used to go over and go up Prescott Street, take a right on Duckrid, pass by Bon Marche, and you go into the stores looking to find customers who want to buy a paper that day. But I had houses along the way that I would go to on a regular basis. And I used to go up King's Road. As a matter of fact, I had a house on Henley Place. It's still there. And then I go up King's Road by George G.R. Parsons, go in around back there and basically get up to Military Road, go in Monkstown Road, go up Catherine Street, and then I was home. You sell your papers then, what you sold, and there were some customers that I had on a regular basis, and I would pick up the money from them on a Saturday. But I think I had to pay for the papers every day down there. I did. I know I did, because he would be counting out the money. Uh, I don't know what I paid for it, but they used to cost, I think, a nickel at that time. That's basically it. Joseph Moore there. Uh, Joe Moore passed away last year, last February. So it's uh, it's been a year since he's gone. And and when when he passed away, I reshared that that story uh, you know, after his funeral. And and it's always worth listening to again. I love I love hearing his voice and talking about his memories of being a boy and and living up in Georgetown. Um, so I think that that more or less uh, brings us kind of towards the end of this uh, clip section of our, or this clip session, I guess, of, of Living Heritage. Um, and, I, and it's also fitting as well to end with that Solomon's Lane story because it's, it's going to be part, I think, of a new project for us. We're, we're, we're looking at doing some work with the Craft Council, Newfoundland and Labrador. They've moved from Devon House. You used to work down at Devon House, right? Oh, yeah. I worked there for five years. For five years. Yeah. Um, and so they've sold that property. They've moved into the building, which used to be the Evening Telegram building down on Solomon's Lane, Solomon's Lane and Duckworth Street. And one of the projects they're interested in is documenting uh, some of the stories there uh, of people who used to work in the building and what happened where in the space. So if you're listening and you have a memory of that building, uh, after the telegram, it was Compu College uh, for a number of years. If you went to Compu College or worked there, we would love to hear from you. If you work for the telegram uh, in that building, certainly let us know. You can, you can email me, uh, dale at heritagenl. You can go to the ichblog.ca and and, uh, find us that way as well. Before it was the Evening Telegram, it was the Newfoundland Clothing uh, Company. And they employed um, uh, many, many seamstresses or tailoresses. Tailoresses. Tailoresses, (laughs) as the the, uh, city directory uh, reported in the early 20th century. And at one point they had 100 tailoresses working out of this building, sewing suits. They made 500 suits a week and shipped them off to England. Uh, And they had a cardboard box-making factory in the basement to box up all these suits and, and send them off for export. 
Uh, and it, it was in business for a good 40 or 50 years or so. So uh, that ended around the time of Confederation, I think. I, I'm not a little certain. I'm not entirely certain when it shut down. So if anyone knows any of those tailoresses, those those women who worked uh, sewing, or, or the, the men who worked in the, the cardboard box, box factory, let us know. We would love to hear some of those stories. And maybe in the future we can do a whole episode just on on that building uh, on that, and that building. yeah yeah uh okay so thank you tara thanks for having me and we'll be back next week i'm tara barrett you've been listening to living heritage a production of chmr radio 93.5 in collaboration with the intangible cultural heritage office of the heritage foundation of newfoundland and labrador find us online at ichblog.ca or on itunes we would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening.